You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Food Aid. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Laura Creek Newman, and with me tonight I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Jem Newman. Hello. Thanks for joining me, everyone. So I am not one of the usual hosts, but yet again, I had an idea, so I wanted to take over for the evening, and everyone else was more than happy to oblige my idea. We're also happy to oblige any ideas listeners have, so let us know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Our, our idea fountains do run dry every once in a while. So, And you all are wonderful, wonderful human beings, I'm sure. So yes, any ideas are great. But for tonight, we're going to talk about my idea, which is talking about food aid. So I think anyone who's listened to this show at least twice understands that I like food and I talk about it almost incessantly. But this is a part of food that we at least... Well, I think I can say pretty uh, certainly the four of us don't really have to worry about much. We all are, are pretty fortunate and very privileged in that we don't really need to think about where our next meal is coming from. Now, that's not to say that we don't have budgets or that we can't always get exactly what we want or anything like that, but we generally don't need to worry about if or how much we will eat again in the future. This is not the case for much of the world's population. And for those of us living in the situations here in Canada and many parts of North America and Europe, we don't often really think a little bit more about how people in other parts of the world who aren't as, as fortunate or who are relying on assistance in order to, to get fed do that and how those systems look a little bit. And as I say that, I realize that a lot of times Again, for those of us who are privileged in this part of the world, we tend to think of it as an other people's problem, a far away kind of problem, something that isn't occurring in our own backyards. And that is certainly not true at all. People are in need and inadequately nourished all over the world, including here in, in Canada and in the richest cities in the world. I think that's one of the biggest things that is important to think about with food aid, that um, while we're going to talk about it on a couple of different levels, it is that. There, there are lots of people who, who need it in many different ways. Hunger is all around us all the time. It, it really is. And of course, that's, it's been a part of human existence. But over the last couple of centuries, the, the issues have been magnified more so. And there's become a, a much greater disparity between the people who are still facing hunger every day and the people who... Uh, men like us never really have to think about it. So I thought I'd get us started off talking on that, I think of it like a macro scale food aid and malnutrition prevention program. So I'm going to talk a little bit about international food aid and how it really works and, and any issues that might be going along with it. So 
I'm curious, before I launch into it too much, uh, I want to know from you, my lovely co-hosts, when you think of international food aid, what comes to mind? Things like where the government donates a lot of money so that the Red Cross can bring food to like refugee camps and stuff is probably the first thing that I would think of. That makes sense, yeah. But then there's also stuff like funding research into stuff like golden rice so that famines are not as brutal. I feel like that's also part of international food aid, maybe. Mm-hmm. Distribution post-disaster. Yeah, or, or yeah. in the midst of a of a, like an ongoing um, crisis uh, mm-hmm. in a uh, war-torn or famine-struck region. Right. Yeah. Like Lauren and Jem, that's often what I think of as that first thought that comes to mind. Uh, when I was young, I watched a lot of World Vision infomercials on the Sunday mornings that I didn't go to church. Oh, yeah. A lot of those. And so those those images of people lining up for bowls of grain or like plain grain porridge and, and generally women carrying large sacks of rice or, or another grain out from the donation center. That's what comes to mind to me. But Ashlyn, I, I love that you were thinking a little bit broader about it too, because while I think a lot of people will think of that immediate food provision, you're right, that food aid in terms of funding development of uh, fortified foods and drought-resistant crops and those types of things are considered part of international food aid as well. Woohoo. So yeah, it is, it is actually a pretty big tent thing, and it's going to depend on which country's policies we're talking about when it comes to food aid. So I want to just go through a few of the different things that are part of food aid and and some of the issues around that. So first I want to tackle that part of the actual food provision. And yes, in the time of say uh, of a natural disaster is a big time when there'll be food provision, ongoing famine, and uh, like you said, Lauren, refugee camps. But uh, those are times when you know, where actual food is provided to people who are in need. There is no food available or, or they're displaced and they can't uh, use whatever food they had to their name. But this actually, while we think of this as a big part of international aid, it doesn't actually need to be as much of part of food aid as we sometimes think that it is. I want to go back to the last time we talked about food banks a little bit and how we just just very briefly, how when we think about helping people who are hungry, we think about giving food. And so when we think internationally, we have that same sort of mentality. We think that it's best, well, if somebody's hungry, we just give food. And this policy had been a big part of a lot of countries' food aid up until relatively recently. So it's actually only um, in the last little bit that other parts of food aid, like the development of foods and and, uh, practices and technology and that, have become bigger parts. So donating food can be helpful, like I said, in those times when people actually don't have any. But it's not a blanket solution. And as I'm sure some of you, my lovely co-hosts, and our listeners have heard, it can make a situation more problematic or it doesn't actually fix the problem at hand. So the biggest thing is that, yes, there are often people who are hungry at a certain time when there's an emergency going on. But just because someone is hungry doesn't mean that there isn't food available in the area. So donating food when there are hungry people doesn't always match. So what we have to look at or what's important to look at is what is the food supply chain in that area? Mm -hmm. 
So a really good example of this was in 2004 when there was the Indian Ocean tsunami. Does anybody remember that? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very much. You know, it was huge news, um, huge donation campaigns and all sorts of things there at the time. And it was terrible. It was tragic. Lots of people were displaced and that. And so there was an immediate need for some people to have food because they lost their houses, they lost everything. But in that area, in many parts of the countries that were hit by that, the food supply chain was still perfectly good. So it was really just the coast that was affected. But for example, rice crops were doing really well and there was a market for it and supply chains and everything. So there wasn't actually a lack of food. People just couldn't get it at the time. So when they got donations of food, that actually wasn't that helpful because there was food. People, yes, they were hungry, but food wasn't actually helping. Uh, I took a class at Penzik once, our big SCA meeting, where we were talking about preparing a particular rice dish. And the instructor told us about when she's been traveling in uh, like Southeast Asia, they'll have all these different kinds of rice for sale, like basmati and jasmine and whatnot. And then they have just huge barrels of American rice that no one will buy because it's gross to them. And, yeah. <laughs> but people like it gets into the country via all of these people thinking they're doing good donating rice that nobody in these countries will eat because it's terrible compared to the awesome rice that they have. <laughs> Basically, she was just trying to tell us don't use American rice for this dish, but <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> I like, I like that subtext on that. Yeah. American but, rice, American mangoes, all sorts of terrible stuff over here. <laughs> yeah. Now there's a reason why there's so much rice, and I'm going to get to that. <laughs> the bags of rice aren't actually what people would need at that. Okay. What they actually need is like money and shelter and a way to access their funds or whatever it is so that they can then go and buy food. Right. Yep. So just throwing food at the problem doesn't always work. You got to figure out where the bottleneck in the system actually is. Yes, that's exactly it. And so depending on how your food aid policy is set up, it may or may not be flexible to do that kind of thing. Another thing that can happen is uh, when you just donate a bunch of food, if there is a market, if the food now arrives for free, and depending on how the economy is doing in that, you can actually tank the, the food market because everybody just starts taking the free food and nobody can sell their crops anymore. And in many parts of the world, the vast majority of food that goes to market is produced by small producers. So it really does make a difference whether they sell their crops and that's how everything keeps rolling. It's much different here in North America where the vast majority of our food comes from huge commodity sellers. So you could actually hypothetically cause a worsening of the famine by putting a bunch of farmers exactly out of their livelihood. Yeah, and that's that has happened in different places as well when food was just uh, thrown at the issue. Haiti, I believe, is one of the places where that is an issue for things, partly because the local farmers just couldn't grow things for the same prices free. <laughs> um, and so you just kept getting into this cycle with different things. It's my understanding that the same problem happens with donated clothing. Like the bales and bales of clothing are sent over and people who used to make a living making clothing and selling clothing and textiles just can't compete with bales of cotton being shipped over. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, gonna say the same, I was gonna say the same thing as Ashlyn, but I didn't get my mic unmuted in time. <laughs> now she gets to sound smart. Well, I think we also talked about it on the same episode that we talked about food banks before. The mm-hmm. the clothing issue. Yeah, that was one of our Christmas charity specials. Ah, yes. We're always uplifting around the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we did a nice, lighthearted episode last month. We did. We did definitely. So there can be, like you were saying, Jim. We can cause unintended problems by just indiscriminately giving food. Another issue is that when food gets donated, it is very often donated unequally. So usually the higher profile or the more emotionally wrenching the situation, the more food gets given to it. Generally what happens, according to some of my sources, was that once there are pictures of starving children on the news of something, that's when political interest starts going there. And then all of a sudden there's a bunch of food aid going there. An example of this was in 2005, there was a famine in Niger and, you know, it was awful. And in 2005, the big uh, rich government started sending food aid, which is good. However, apparently there had been reports a year earlier that a famine was mounting and that malnutrition was increasing and no one did anything until it was all over the local news. So that's really unfortunate. And then as, you know, the next crisis happens, often food aid gets moved around. So a better food aid policy would be like to identify where these things are about to happen and intervene before it gets to that point. Right, right. But that's not as heart-wrenching as people are starving now. People are starving in the future is not as urgent. Right, yeah. People are semi-starving isn't as urgent as people are starving now. You're right. Or, or sometimes what will happen too is that food aid is given, but it's not distributed according to need appropriately. And this is where you can fluctuate the market more so as well, because the people who weren't able to participate in the market anyway aren't getting enough to eat. And the people who could have participated are now getting stuff for free, which is driving down prices and it goes on like that. So there's a lot of issues. So you might wonder, well, why do we bother giving food, right? Well, for some countries, and actually for a lot of countries, providing in-kind food donation was written into their policies and their laws around international aid. The best example of this is that in the U.S., their aid is directly tied to U.S.-grown commodities, and they are required to give the vast majority of the dollar equivalent of their aid as U.S. grown commodities. Oh, so as like a a subsidy to the farmers. Yes, that's God, actually how the U.S. everything down there. Yeah, that's actually how the U.S. food aid program developed after World War II. It was a way to both help pay farmers for their excess uh, commodity grains and legumes and things like that, and then ship it overseas. And it was also a way to spread, quote unquote, democracy. So not, Uh uh uh-huh. So that is exactly how their food aid program is made. As of, I believe it was 2017, in that year, 76% of their food aid dollars were spent as commodity, like as commodities. However, in the US, I'm gonna use this as an example because it's basically the lone holdout here. In the US, the amount of money that they would spend on food aid 
that doesn't just directly translate into that amount of dollars in, say, rice, for example. They then, so their policy states that it has to be grown by Americans, so grown in America, and that amount of money has to cover the shipping costs of flying rice, or not flying, but shipping rice from, say, Texas to Indonesia as well. So in many years, they will spend about half of their aid dollars just shipping the food. Gross. Yeah. So unnecessary. Yeah. So it's super inefficient to do it that way. Canada used to have at least some of its funds tied to in-kind Canadian-grown commodities. As of 2009, 100% of our food assistance dollars are untied, meaning that we send cash and people on the ground do what they need to do with it. So NGOs like Doctors Without Borders and UNICEF and different groups like that, uh, they receive the money and they will, if food is what is needed, they will purchase food, but they purchase it locally. If, you know, tents are what's needed, they'll buy that. If just money is what they need to give people so people can go buy their own food, they do that. They make those decisions on the ground based as what they're doing. And pretty much all of the research says that that's the most efficient way to do things. It's really outside of times when there is a huge natural disaster and the whole market and supply chain is wiped out or in cases of severe malnutrition where people need to be resuscitated really quickly, that seems to be the most efficient way to give that aid. How is it that the Canadian foreign aid program is so much better than the aid that we give our own northern communities? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I don't have that answer, Lauren. I didn't expect you to, but <laughs> I don't know why there aren't you know, similar programs. Well, I still think it's ridiculous that in our own country, COVID aside, the fact that people are having to call in the Red Cross to help communities is... Yeah. Like, is is just mind-boggling. It's absurd because it's not that the people don't need help. It's that they shouldn't need help. Yeah, this country is so rich and it's so ill-distributed. And I, I feel like we should make it clear that what I think what you're saying is that we can afford to help everyone, including our northern communities, not like, let's not help those other people until we've helped our own, which is kind of how that came across. No, no, that's not what I meant at all. (laughs) I'm saying that if we've updated this program, why can't we update our internal programs? And why is any Canadian going, well, why is anyone around the world going hungry, first of all, but especially in a country as rich and resource laden as Canada? Yeah, exactly. I, I pulled a great quote from the Wikipedia article on aid that really speaks to this. It was by an anthropologist and researcher named Jason Hickel in a 2016 report where he concluded that the usual development narrative has it backwards. Aid is effectively flowing in reverse. Rich countries aren't developing poor countries. Poor countries are developing rich ones. The aid narrative begins to seem a bit naive when we take these reverse flows into account. It becomes clear that aid does little but mask the maldistribution of resources around the world. It makes the takers seem like givers, granting them a kind of moral high ground while preventing those of us who care about global poverty from understanding how the system really works. Oh, that's perfect. Hot hot damn. That's yeah. Can we just put that out on the air? Do we need to do the rest of the show? (laughs) (laughs) The Global North has spent centuries just exploiting the global south and engaging in 
extractivist endeavors and colonialist endeavors to like take as much wealth as possible and just you know that wealth can come both in the form of you know raw resources like the conflict metals that are in all of our computers uh, or in the form of uh, labor exploitation too yep and environmental exploitation as well because usually the crops and or mines are done in ways that are causing irreparable damage because uh that's the cheapest way to do it Mm -hmm. sometimes you just gotta burn a rainforest down laura come on (laughs) just sometimes okay so as we can see there's a lot of issues and in the case of some countries but also in a lot of countries the reason when they give food is not really that helpful. So we've seen a lot of the issues that come when it's the rich countries that are deciding what is given, when, and where. I didn't even get into the part where so much of the food aid is tied to political will, like promising more aid if a country adopts quote-unquote democracy, taking away aid if the two countries are having tensions, like uh, the U.S. did when they halted food aid to North Korea in 2005 over nuclear tensions. There's a lot of issues around that there. So it's really not a donation. They're just paying for influence in so many ways. And then, of course, there's the issue of the fact, not just that the perhaps the American rice isn't palatable to other parts of the world, but in a lot of cases, the food scent is just not great um, at all. So in some cases, it's totally culturally insensitive. This doesn't happen very much, but earlier on, there were many cases of, say, pork being sent to uh, Muslim-majority countries. So that doesn't work very well. (laughs) Come on. <laughs> Just the most basic of knowledge. Check yeah. Wikipedia or something. <laughs> well, these, these, okay, to be fair, this was before Wikipedia happened. Uh, this was a couple okay. decades ago. But still, this is something that Check if you Britannica work... Britannica or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And even if the food is uh, somewhat culturally relevant... Just think about it. You know, it's usually vast quantities of dry goods commodities. So we're talking grains like wheat and rice, maybe some legumes, right? That's about it. So people's diets get really limited when they're relying on this kind of stuff all of the time. And I mean, I love whole grains. Don't you, don't get me wrong. They're great. And I love legumes. But if that's all you're giving, and sometimes it's all grain or sometimes it's all legumes, you're going to be missing out. Like, it's not great. Um, and they've found in some areas when they gave people money to go buy their own food or they got cash donations and they bought food locally, people had more varied diets, they had more fresh foods, all these kinds of things. Like, the, the diet quality was better. Now, the last thing I do want to close on, though, is one area where groups who offer or distribute food aid are trying to get these food donating countries to come around is saying, look, if you're going to give actual in-kind donations, there are better ways to do that. So instead of doing the commodities, where they're really looking is looking at these ready-to-use fortified food products. The golden rice that you were talking about, Ashlyn, that doesn't really count in this, but it's along the same line. So these are food products that are developed, have extra nutrients added to them so yeah I feel like I was only thinking of that one in particular because we just talked about it recently 
Yeah. So the one of the best examples of this right now is something called uh, the Plumpy Nut Bar. But there's other names for the same type of thing. And I've mentioned this before. Do you guys remember what this is? Plumpy Nut. <laughs> I remember you talking about it. Yeah. I do not remember this at all. I feel like I should remember something with that good a name. Okay. I wanted to try it. It is... It is wonderful. So it's basically a fortified peanut butter paste. So it's it's made of like ground peanuts, like natural peanut butter. It has um, milk powder added to it. It has oil, some sugar, and then a bunch of vitamins and minerals added to it. So it's actually a really effective treatment for childhood malnutrition. Nice. Um, and what makes it different from other treatments is that like typically they would use milk-based formulas, but those would need to be mixed with water, which if you're in places that don't have great, exactly. You need good infrastructure for safe drinking water, especially for malnourished kids, right? So these are great because they come in prepackaged things that last years on the shelf. And all you need to do is open them up and eat them. And each of these packages will contain somewhere around 500 calories and a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals. So they're great. And there's some really great studies showing that they're really effective. And what's nice too is that unlike other ways of treating the malnutrition, people can do this at home with their kids. So these types of aid can be delivered to the community. The families who need it can take it, but then they can keep their kids at home. They don't need to go to a hospital or a care center or something like that and their kids can start to thrive at home again. So it's really awesome. So this is one thing where, yeah, if you're gonna give something like food, these types of things are fantastic for that. I don't know, those bars sound pretty good. Yeah, so Plumpy Nut, check it out. <laughs> I'm just Plumpy gonna keep Plumpy Nut. It's great. And what's awesome is Plumpy Nut is it's made in a few different places around the world. But what's especially good is it's starting to be produced in parts of the world where um, it's more likely to be needed. So even the yeah. shipping time and cost is going to be lower and it's going to add to the local or to the, uh, the economies of those countries there. So that is just a little bit about international food aid. So like we often see, just throwing food at a problem, just throwing the obvious thing at a problem doesn't always fix it. But if you look a little bit into the situation, you might get a better understanding of what people actually need. They need a house and they need money. Yeah. Like the answer is generally they need money, whether mm -hmm. it's them individually or the people who are, you know, helping coordinate things for them. They just need money, and then from there they can figure it out. Most people can budget. I like the uh, the updated version of the, what would you call it, parable? Uh, if you teach a man to fish, they'll eat f forever, but it's hard to learn to fish if you're starving. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, have to yeah. feed people first and then fix the problem. Right. But don't just throw bags of rice at them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you might knock the guy off his boat. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, the I, like I can definitely see people saying, "Well, what you know? What if what if there's no food, uh, you know, in the country? Then then that we would should be send them food. Yeah, time money. to but, but send food. First of all, like that's sure that that might be a great time to send food. That is a rare circumstance, and also like airlifting food from the United States to like 
somewhere anywhere. far away. Well, that's exactly um, it. Right? Is is going to be incredibly inefficient, and you can there there will be food nearby that they could spend exactly. that on. You know, yeah. yes. at the, at worst possible case, they can turn around and say, "Hey, United States, here's some money for some food. You can send food to us now. <laughs> now that we have this money." But they can also do things that are more reasonable. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that's a really good point, Jen. Like, yeah, even if like border to border to border to border, there is not yeah. a, a not a calorie to be found in a country. There's probably a country nearby that has something to sell. So yep. that money, even if it can't be spent within that country, it can be spent on a neighboring economy. And guess what? International trade is a thing. <laughs> like, yep. you, not just you can between spend the US. some of it. You can spend some of it to to buy food and some of it to get you know, farmers set up in the country. If to 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 solve this, suddenly there's no food problem. <laughs> assuming yeah. it's assuming it exactly. is actually a problem of, you know, not enough actual food rather than breakdown of other distribution chains yeah. or my thought was going to be set up a nationalized supply chain if you need to bring in food constantly from other countries. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what the global north does. Yeah. All roads lead to Rome because Rome didn't produce anything. <laughs> exactly. So, food aid is a little bit more complicated than it seems. All right, so I want to look at this a little bit more closer to home. So, Ashlyn, what are you going to tell us about? So, I am going to talk about food banks. I'm pretty proud that I was able to use all Canadian sources, so we're just talking about Canada today and not our neighbor to the south. First, the before times, before COVID ruined everything. <laughs> In 2019, Canada's food banks had over 1 million visitors. About a third of those visitors were children. Things were already starting to look grim in 2019. Usage of food banks was going up. Uh, in Toronto, where most of my information is from, because I guess people only want to talk to the director of like the biggest food bank. So I've read articles with three different directors of this enormous food bank because that's the one everybody wants to talk to. <laughs> uh, anyway, in Toronto, where most of my information is from, in the last fiscal year, pre-pandemic, food bank use had risen an alarming 5%, uh, and it was back to the high levels that they were at following the 2008 financial crisis. So already mm. not doing great. Yeah. Pre-COVID, an estimated 4.5 million Canadians experienced food insecurity. Food insecurity can look like a lot of things, from skipping meals to ensure rent or bills get paid, or parents eating only whatever their kids leave behind, or having just no idea where your next meal might come from. All of those things count as food insecurity. If someone is ever not eating because of a lack of food or money for food, they're food insecure. Mm -hmm. In the first two months of the global pandemic, so it was already 4.5 million Canadians, that number rose 39% meaning that one in seven Canadians was experiencing food insecurity. Oh my God. And of course, like pretty much everything terrible, low income and BIPOC communities were much harder hit than average. Uh, mm -hmm. BIPOC being black, indigenous, and people of color. Quote from Community Food Centers Canada, if there is a lesson to be learned from COVID-19, it is that people's vulnerabilities are shaped by their circumstances. The inequities the crisis has highlighted have deep roots that span well beyond the current crisis. 
So typically, uh, hampers provided by food banks in Canada are expected to last the recipient and their family about three days. Uh, so they're curated to the size of the family, but they're never supposed to be all of the food a family consumes. It's supposed to be a top-up. It's supposed to last about three days. Uh, in many cases, though, it's of course not enough. A quote from an article that I read said that even after visiting a food bank, which typically provides three days worth of food, 85% of respondents reported that they did not always have enough food to eat. As a result, 43% still went hungry at least once a week. So that's people receiving hampers, still go hungry. It's ridiculous that even with the best help that we can provide people, they still can't eat. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed before, not reasonable with the amount of wealth that we have in Canada. Yeah. So looking at purely the nutritional value of the hampers, one study from the Canadian Journal of Public Health found that hampers given to families uh, that were supposed to last three days had the required caloric value for only 1.6 days. So even though these aren't supposed to be all the food you get, they weren't even, they were like half of what they were supposed to be. They were well stocked with non-perishable cereals and grains, but lacked fruit, vegetables, dairy, and meat. The study was kind of like, uh, food banks should get more buy-in from companies and individuals to get more fresh stuff. But then the same study was also like, these facilities have nowhere to store this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. obviously there's a problem there. <laughs> yeah. Do they have massive fridges and freezers? Do they have, and can they afford the utility bills that would come along with that? Right. And can they make sure that they can distribute these things? You know, you have to have the whole cold chain of custody, right? Yeah. And you have to get it out to people so quickly and yeah. you have to have people on hand who know the food safety rules, who can make sure that nothing is sitting out for too long. And that's really hard, even in restaurants mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that, you know, fro- freezer stuff doesn't sit out of the freezer for the a maximum amount of time that it's allowed to before it's considered spoiled. Winnipeg Harvest just had a Uh, I think it's an ongoing, you can get a grant to buy a freezer for your Winnipeg Harvest location. And I know that our food bank that we run at the UU Church, we've just applied for and uh, have been deemed qualified for one of these bigger freezers specifically for our food bank. So it's going to be able to store things in between the weeks that it's open. That's a good initiative. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. I don't know how many other food banks are able to get this into their places and, and use them, so... Mm-hmm. Right. So also to get access to that stuff, um, instead of the supply chain being in charge of that, even the getting the grant was in char- was dependent upon someone from that individual depot knowing that these were available and applying for one. Yeah. And we also needed letters from two board members, which is why I knew about it is I wrote a letter. A lot of bureaucracy to get somebody some cold food. Yeah. We have covered on the podcast before giving to food banks. Uh, Here's the short version. Uh, Give them cash. (laughs) Again, (laughs) food banks can do a ridiculous amount with a dollar. They can buy so much more food than you can for a dollar, no matter what Costco membership you have. Give them cash if you have cash. If you, for whatever reason, can give food but not cash, try and focus on foods with high nutritional content. Um, So again, they have tons of pasta. They have tons of white bread, something a little more calorically dense that they could put in those hampers. But also several articles that I read are emphasizing now considering the cultural makeup of your city. Like we were saying, if you have a large Muslim population, maybe don't donate bacon. 
not that that's particularly likely, but um, <laughs> one of the examples that I found was in Toronto, things like bitter gourd and lotus root are highly desired items at food banks that basically never get donated. So culturally appropriate foods and cash so that they can buy foods that the people that they serve will eat. One food bank that I read about is also doing cooking classes, and they said that one of the problems that they were running into is that people wouldn't take items because they had no idea what to do with them. And so they're offering these classes like how to cook 10 pounds of lentils into 10 different meals so that you don't (laughs) hate them. (laughs) Yeah. I could use that course. (laughs) (laughs) They're just bad. I'm sorry, Laura. No, lentils are amazing. You're both wrong. I'm on the lentil the occasional lentil hand. dish. I I don't mind. I had a lentil loaf from Chef's Plate that was pretty good once. That's like my high bar for lentils. I like lentils. Lentils are <laughs> delicious. I'm with you, Laura. Lentils are good, and they're so they're so packed with protein. It's great. I wish anyway. I could like them truly. <laughs> yeah, I I love the idea of the cooking classes. Like it's great. It there's challenges with those things as well. Oh, for sure. uh, And especially now. Yeah. And that's, you know what, honestly, how to cook a bunch of lentils in a bunch of different ways. That's a cooking class that a lot of Canadians could take. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So all of this is pre-COVID. When the pandemic hit, naturally, the use of food banks rose sharply. According to Food Banks Canada, the majority, uh, 52% of food banks, saw an increase in the month of March compared to the previous year, with a quarter of food banks seeing increases of greater than 25%. So that's like a big hit right away. Food bank operators have speculated that without the lockdowns that restricted people from moving around, they would have spiked even higher, but people were afraid to leave the house to go get food. So that's terrible. Food banks have had to adapt to distancing requirements, of course, and especially uh, a huge drop in volunteers. Mm-hmm. About half of food banks gave food to programs outside the ones that they normally support, like school programs and social service agencies. Uh, and almost 70% started some kind of home delivery service to ensure that people who couldn't leave the house could still access the food from the food bank. Uh, this was typically offered to like current clients rather than new clients, which is why use of the food bank didn't spike with the food delivery program. Others have offered like gift cards or grocery vouchers when they couldn't make food available. They've converted whole warehouses into drive-through operations and all sorts of things. Like they have done what they could with a lot fewer volunteers than they've ever had before. Almost half of food banks reported that a reduction in volunteers was a critical challenge in 2020. So a significant portion of the food bank supply chain relies on volunteers to sort donations, transfer food into and out of vehicles, distribute food to clients. There's a lot of depots that just don't exist without volunteers. Mm -hmm. And there aren't enough paid staff to make up for that by a long shot. Many of those volunteers are often people who fall into COVID risk categories like 65 plus. So without them, food distribution has been way more challenging. In October of this year, the Daily Bread Food Bank in Ontario was dealing with an overwhelming increase in demand. They saw an increase in clients from 10,000 at this time last year, already huge. This year, they're serving 25,000 clients. Oh my and god. They expect that the worst is yet to come. Oh. So, Carolyn Stewart, 
is the executive director of Feed Ontario, which is uh, an organization that represents all of the food banks in Ontario, as far as I could tell. I think it's just the one organization that's like an umbrella. So she says, this is because people use other methods to assist, so they'll burn through their savings first, they'll borrow from friends, they might reduce their belongings before turning to a food bank for support. While we've seen our numbers start to increase, we haven't felt, we don't believe, the full impact of the pandemic and anticipate our numbers going up over the next 6 to 12 months. Yep. So as people exhaust other resources, they're going to start turning to the food banks in even more numbers than they are now. From the same person, quote, ultimately, food banks are not a solution to food insecurity and poverty. We exist to provide emergency support to an immediate need, but the long-term way to address poverty and food insecurity is through strong public policies that ensure a good social safety net. While we saw the lineups increase, we know that food insecurity is not a COVID-19 issue. Mm-hmm. A report from Community Food Centers Canada calls on the federal government to take additional action to support households experiencing food insecurity. Quote, emergency policy responses to COVID-19, like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, helped prevent thousands of Canadians from falling into poverty. But deep poverty was already the reality for the vast majority of food banks' clients. Food Banks Canada says that now that the CERB has ended, it's critical that new permanent income support models and other social policies be put into place so that Canadians can make ends meet. Food banks across Canada cannot deal with the tidal wave of new clients while maintaining its level of support for long-term need created by decades of social policy neglect. Yeah. So finally, I came across a couple of articles that talked about how food bank administrators are pushing to be included in emergency planning. In a lot of places, they are not considered when talking about things like natural disasters or pandemics. There was one article I read where she said something like, um, people think about shelter, people think about clothes, uh, people think about heat, but then you get everybody warm and sheltered and clothed and someone looks around and goes, well, who is supposed to bring the sandwiches? <laughs> so uh, it does seem like a, a weird category of things to leave out of the loop, but uh, apparently that is kind of the norm. Miss Scott from the Daily Bread and other food banks in Canada say the pandemic has underscored the need to ensure that such agencies are written into emergency plans and treated as a priority. She said during the pandemic, a more centralized approach that involved the provincial government could have helped manage food supply chain issues and ensured food banks had personal protective equipment. The province initially helped food banks and other agencies with PPE, but then eventually limited that program to healthcare services. Like, obviously, there was a shortage, but getting people food is important, too. So she finishes by saying, I think sometimes food banks are taken for granted as a system that just keeps operating behind the scenes all the time. I think that that is true. I also think that in a lot of cases, people just think, well, the people who are using those food banks are lesser than. Mm. Having, we have this notion, and this is what stops people from using food banks when they could, um, just like you were saying, Ashlyn, having used a food bank somehow demotes you in society, mm. and you are no longer worthy. So, oh, well, you know, you're not good enough anymore. This is all facetious, please. I am not saying this. <laughs> I'm saying this is the mentality that we tend to use, right? We love the idea of a food bank, but we all hate the idea of using it because we, as a society, look down on using them. We don't seem to look down on the idea of the fact that so many people need them. That's okay. But the people who use them, that's a problem. 
because we're still of the mentality that poverty is a moral issue. Exactly. That's such a frustrating take on things too, especially when you think about the people who are food insecure. Like food insecurity is, it's not a you are or you are not thing. Like so many people will cycle in and out of it in their lives. So most people who are food insecure are not always food insecure. They're going to go through a phase of food insecurity. And that might be a longer phase, but they haven't spent their entire lives being food insecure. That's actually a very small number of people. Most people, they got sick or um, they had a relationship breakdown or something like that, right? Major unexpected cost. And that's what did it, right? And then maybe a few months or a few years down the road, they're no longer in that situation. There's also a lot of people who use food banks who do so because their basic needs aren't met by things like uh, unemployment insurance and disability because we don't fund those programs to the level that they need. Yeah. So people can actually live lives. And also minimum wage workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All of these things like minimum wage and and um, social assistance policies, they, they haven't kept pace with inflation and just the cost of living with things. So yeah, you, at the end of the day, when you're on certain types of assistance, if you've paid your rent, you've got almost nothing left for food. So you do what you can with that, but then that's what you absolutely have to do. Um, or older individuals living on uh, like government pensions and that that's pretty common for them as well. If you're on a disability program in Canada, you are kept in perpetual poverty. You are not allowed to accumulate any sort of wealth or you will lose your income. And that's despicable. It is. It really, really is. I think this all speaks to the fact that while the UN has enshrined food as part of the basic human rights since its founding in the late 40s, nobody seems to really take that seriously. Like nobody, especially here in the richest countries. I would say that it's not that food banks are taken for granted per se. It's that the idea that, oh, everyone can just eat as much as they want in these rich countries is taken for granted. And we refuse to look beyond that platitude to the inequalities that exist here in our city, in every city around here, in every town. And we don't really see food as a true human right. Because if we did, we would make it easier to actually feed each other rather than starting to get on moral high horses about who deserves what food when. Yep, for sure. Like the people who get ticketed for handing out food. Or to segue into a short discussion about food stamps, people who police what's in other people's carts and what food stamps can pay for. Yeah, so that's a system that we don't have here, at least in, in this part of Canada. I don't know if any part of Canada does have a food stamp system? I'm not sure. Do you guys know? Do any of you know? I haven't heard of one. Nor have I, but I would not be surprised if any community had one. Mm -hmm. Let's do a quick Google. But they are generally not called food stamps anymore. It's now SNAP. SNAP, yeah. Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I don't think we did last I checked. One of the differences, too, is that much like a lot of things, uh, a lot of differences between Canada and the U.S., things like social assistance programs are administered provincially, so you don't have a federal legislation around that, whereas things like food stamps or now SNAP are federal programs. Right. 
Yeah, I just found a an article that I looked uh, at last time I had this question. It's uh, a Vice article that that is titled, uh, "Hey Canada, why don't you have food stamps?" <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what is uh, the answer, Jim? <laughs> it, it was a uh, rhetorical uh, question. There's a quotation here from uh, Dr. Valerie uh, Tarasuk, who is a researcher and uh, nutrition professor from the University of Toronto. And uh, she said, um, the U.S. program is hardly a role model, is it? Um, (laughs) And uh, when she was asked whether she thought Canada could benefit from food stamps or SNAP, she said, quote, the problem is that by the time someone is at the stage to not be able to afford food, it's not just food that they're missing. They can't afford clothing, their housing might be compromised, they're under incredible levels of stress. These are all things that are negatively impacting someone's health. At that point, it's too late. Uh, so basically what she uh, proposes is that we should focus on pulling people out of poverty sort of holistically rather than just giving them a card that they can use for food specifically. Yeah. Like a universal basic income? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point because food stamps are pretty specific. They can be used for fresh foods, pantry staples, those types of things, but they can't be used for, say, cleaning supplies. They can't be used for vitamins or diapers. They can't be used for um, household items. They can't be used for things that have, like, sugar in them, like soda and things like that. How dare you try to enjoy yourself? You're on food stamps. Right. And again, that's part of the moralizing that tends to come along with it. Well, if you are so hard off that you need this program, then you can't have any of this other stuff. Right. And it's it's absolutely wild how they calculate it, too, because they will only it's not like a set amount for if you qualify for SNAP, you get X amount of money. It's whatever they think you should be spending on rent and everything else. They take all that out of your income and then they think, okay, you need a basic amount per day for food. And if you don't meet that, we will top that up. I have a friend who qualifies for 58 cents a month in food stamps. It's just why? (laughs) Yep, that's ridiculous. It's like, oh, good. That will get me half a box of macaroni and cheese. (laughs) Well, and even if you qualify for like, say, $16 worth of food, assistance are you going to overcome the stigma to get out your card to pay for $16 worth of groceries I don't know you know some people are not going to be able to overcome that yeah yep just give people money just give people money. That's the thing. And then when you have this voucher program, it also relies on retailers who are going to accept the vouchers. And right. that's a problem because you can end up in, in neighborhoods or communities where no one accepts it. So how much better is that if you need to travel to a different town or across the city or something like that? That is an extreme uh, extra pressure to put on someone. And until the pandemic, if you didn't have a car or any kind of transportation, I think it was not allowed for SNAP benefits to be accepted for delivery. Like the program itself did not allow it. Um, So if you couldn't, if you weren't able-bodied enough to carry your groceries, you could not use them basically. Yeah, that's so absurd. Like, I mean... As they note in their own statistics, a large proportion of the people using these types of things have disabilities of different Mm -hmm. kinds. 
So, but it's more important to put up roadblocks so that the wrong people aren't getting access to free food. Oh no. Well, and also it's it's a punishment. It's a punishment for being not society's quote unquote ideal person. That's really what it is. Oh, you don't fit. You're not rich enough. You're not whatever enough. You don't get any luxuries in life. Mm -hmm. Not that I think that delivery, if it helps you achieve not malnutrition is a luxury, but it's seen that way, right? Like you need to endure every possible hardship aside from actually succumbing to hunger. Yeah, there are different programs that have food vouchers in Canada, but it's usually for small amounts for very particular items. For example, like healthy baby programs will often have vouchers specifically for milk that can't be used on anything but milk those types of very specific things. And that I see it more like you get a coupon in the mail for like, get free, whatever. And you use it like that. Like those programs are not meant to supplement your whole diet. They're supposed to supplement specific food items. So while I love food and I love being able to provide people with food and food knowledge and abilities and things like that, the answer in so many cases when it comes to hunger is not just give more food. If it's not appropriate, if it's not uh, relevant, if it's not safe, if it's not actually what they really need at the moment, it's not better to do that. Mm -hmm. So food aid is a really tricky thing and we tend to like it, I think, because it's a tangible thing that we can do. You know, I can give a thing. It looks good when it's not just here's cash. But again, we have to think about what moral bias do we have? Why don't we want to just hand over cash and let people spend it? Because we believe that we know better or something. Is that it? We need yeah. to examine those types of questions for ourselves. Because they obviously got poor by making bad decisions. So we have to take the decisions away. Right. Exactly. It's clearly not the case that people in poverty have made bad decisions. Yeah. If you look past the very surface. One of the things that I talk about frequently whenever determinism comes up is the fact that it frees you from having to make those sorts of moral judgments. Or, or you know, there, there, are, there are other reasons not to make those sorts of moral judgments, but it sort of takes them off the table. If we are the, the product of our circumstances, then the only reasonable response, I think, is compassion. Yep. Compassion and this is a good time to, again, thinking on the fact that so many people may experience things like food insecurity at some point in their lives and thinking that could be me and trying to actually put ourselves in people's shoes. I think sometimes those simulators do a good job of making people think about it. Like they give you $600 to last the pay period or whatever, and you have to get through a series of disasters. And if you screw up even a tiny thing, then ah, you're screwed. You need to take out a payday loan and now you'll never have money for rent again. Yeah. One of the issues with the, I, I agree. And I have, I've, I've played around with a couple of those even recently, but depending on how they are produced and depending on who's using them, they can sometimes reinforce the idea that, poverty is is winnable that's true <laughs> you know, yeah all you have to do is make the right choices yeah i feel you like know, in some good. people those kinds of games will <laughs> let you develop empathy and in some people you know there's just no saving them because they're horrible <laughs> <laughs> i read a book last year it's somewhat biographical or I mean, it is biographical but it's it's um 
It's called Made, M-A-I-D, by Stephanie Land, I believe. And it basically chronicles her life living a super low-income life as a single parent. And she talks about her food insecurity, and she talks about the weekly grind that she has in order to continue to qualify for the different programs that let her eat one meal a day and let her three-year-old eat a modest amount of food and like, and get the income. And it's just, yeah, she does a a good job of, of just really laying out and making you feel how her exhaustion at it. She's working full-time at a physically demanding job and trying to go to school through like subsidy programs and that at night and she's got this three-year-old and just like all of the different balls she has to juggle to continue to qualify for these meager programs. I'd recommend that one and putting yourself in her shoes you're exhausted and you can see why people having to do that are just so exhausted all of the time can be a full-time job just trying to keep up with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Which is absurd, and it would save everyone so much money and dignity if we just gave people money. Yeah. I know that, like, in the past few years, probably a third of our shows have ended in us just yelling, just give them money! <laughs> that's because it's so true! <laughs> Universal truth. Universal income. <laughs> it's It's right there in the name, folks. We can make this a shirt, right? <laughs> I I became known in the first uh, month that I was uh, in med school as uh, the guy who loves universal basic income. <laughs> <laughs> in, in every tutorial uh, section, like I would like open my mouth and somebody would would say in the uh, in the chat. This is where Jim pipes in with give them money. <laughs> it's true, though. Good to know you're not a different person elsewhere, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Doctors tend to be a, a little bit uh, more conservative, you know, as a profession that, that makes a fair amount of money. And <laughs> my tutorial leaders and instructors always seem so hurt when I tell them they should raise our taxes. <laughs> Oh boy. boy. uh, When rich people or very comfortable people complain about how much tax they pay, and then also in the the same conversation tell me about the nice vacation that they can comfortably afford to go on every year, I'm just like, uh huh, (laughs) uh huh. Well, thanks everyone for joining me for this discussion around food aid. I hope it was. I don't want to say enjoyable. It's not enjoyable to talk about this, but it's important to know and it's important to think a little bit deeper on our actions and how they can truly affect people and what people really need. I hope you learned something. Before we sign off for tonight, we want to make sure that we talk about some uplifting things. So I'd like to hear what is nice that's going on in everyone's lives right now. Who'd like to start? I'm going to start because mine is like half bummer. <laughs> so not allowed we, we might as well end with some actual nice things but uh so lauren and i's husband dave has covid that sucks but yeah he was exposed for like one minute wearing a mask so like i said on facebook whatever you're doing that's less safe than that reconsider doing that thing it is not fun 
he's doing okay. His parents were both hospitalized at one point, but uh, are on the mend. Things are looking up. So that's nice, but it's also, I feel very grateful that our house is set up such that we have a basement that has a bedroom and a bathroom and a rec room and a fridge that he was able to totally quarantine himself in and we have a bedroom and a kitchen and a bathroom up here and we don't have to share any spaces. We can leave him food on the stairs and uh, even though we spent a lot of time with him right up until a day after he developed symptoms, Lauren and I are both negative as of now. So that is good. (laughs) Gotta hold on to the good things. That's including a test from a a week he's been in. A week? A few days? I don't know. Time has no meaning. <laughs> we haven't seen him since Wednesday, and it is now Monday. We can hear him. God, can we hear him? <laughs> like being haunted by a very huffy ghost. <laughs> well, and thanks to the wonders of technology, we've been able to watch some shows with him via this teleparty. Have you guys heard of this thing? That is also something nice. So for a bit, it was called Netflix Party, but they probably got sued. I don't know. Now it's called Teleparty. Everybody has to have their own Netflix account. But for example, like Dave and Lauren and I all have one Netflix account that Lauren pays for, uh, but we have different profiles on it. Right. So we were able to use our different profiles, plus uh, our friends joined in and we could watch a movie together and you can like start and stop the video and it starts and stops it for everybody and there's a little chat room it's It's really really cool and really easy it's just Mm -hmm. like a chrome browser extension that you can plug in so fun via the wonders of technology we can still watch movies with dave and play games and stuff awesome thanks ashlyn i have been enjoying some nice old books lately Over the Christmas break, I had my break from school, and uh, the kids had their break from school at the same time. So there were several days where, like, a lot of the stuff, you know, we would go and play outside and like that, but we would just, like, sit in the living room and just read books for hours. And I read them Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. And, you know, like, these books from my childhood haven't aged quite as gracefully as as perhaps they did in my mind. So that was very nice to, to just read them Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Huxley was insisting on being called Charlie for for several <laughs> days and like that. So that, that was lovely. And I also uh, have, uh, because of the new HBO series starring Matthew Reese, I have got into reading the old Perry Mason novels from the 30s. And I think, honestly, so far, there's, I think, 80 of them or something. So <laughs> I've only read wow. a sliver. But uh, but so far, they, they hold up better than I would expect a novel from the 30s to hold up. <laughs> yeah, they're fun, kind of noir, detective-y type fiction from the 30s. And, you know, so that's just been nice. And and the HBO series with Matthew Reese is, is good, too. Awesome. Thanks, Jan. Oh, and uh, we also, uh, Laura and I, did watch the Barkley Marathons, the documentary that <laughs> Ashlyn recommended last month, and oh, phenomenal! Just so a, good, just a wonderful, wonderful movie to watch. Highly recommended. It's yeah. it's on Amazon, and you can rent it on, I think, on iTunes and like that too. Awesome, Lauren. Do you have a something nice? I've been trying to think of one, but even going last wouldn't give me something to to really. <laughs> 
I had this last week off, and I haven't worked since uh, January 1. I've logged in, checked my email, <laughs> because we're never not at work now. Right, of course. But it's been a very weird few days mm-hmm. with the COVID and what's happening in the States, and yeah. So I don't... I'm trying to think of something that's been nice. I just relaxed today and played silly phone games and listen to silly podcasts so I guess that's nice that does sound very nice a quiet no expectations kind of day yeah I was uh sitting here writing my segment all day because I that's the kind of procrastinator that I am and I at one point told Lauren like okay you have to start nagging me every 20 minutes to see if I'm actually working and uh they were not a very good supervisor I have to say no I did not Lauren's but I got obviously it done, still like, in vacation right mode. Right at eight thirty. <laughs> well, that's pretty good, Ashlyn. I'm <laughs> I'm impressed. You did a wonderful job. Well, Lauren, you were able to come up with something that sounds very nice to me. So, yes, wonderful. It sounds idyllic to someone with children. So. <laughs> Didn't you just go on a nice little getaway? Yes, we did. We did. So my something nice is that we got couple days out in the beautiful white shell which is for anyone who's familiar with it knows how beautiful that area is and for anyone who isn't look it up it's lovely and uh, winter is a lovely time to be out there it's usually full of cottagers and tourists in the summer but winter is really beautiful we got on a nice winter hike and we saw a river otter poke up from one of the rivers at the rapids and then it came out on the ice and it belly slid down the ice along the rapid, and then went back in the water. It was adorable. Oh my god, that's amazing. It was so cute. So cute. What a sight. Yeah! So that that was really fun. It was just a beautiful morning hike, and that was something nice recently, to have a little bit of time away and enjoy the beautiful outdoors and the weather that we've been having. So that was, that was good. And I only know because uh, Jem sent us a picture of a board game that they were playing. And it went right over my head, but Lauren looked at the picture and goes, where are they? That's not their kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, Jem mentioned they were out of town for the weekend. They're probably in a little cabin somewhere. (laughs) We were. We were. Lovely, lovely place on a place called Dorothy Lake. Nice. Yeah, Laura beat me uh, in two consecutive uh, strategy games. Nice. Woohoo! What was the other one? Root. We played Root. Oh right yeah, after. Root is good. Yeah, she played. She played uh, Dominance, and then <laughs> I I was playing the birds, and I immediately had to go into turmoil because I had so many armies, I couldn't recruit enough people to satisfy my decree. Oh no! Because <laughs> I didn't have enough armies left. Didn't to have recruit. any left. <laughs> And so I went into turmoil, and she uh, she won with the, the dominance card. It was good. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what are we going to talk about next month? I was looking up something from an older show, and I noticed that Sandwich Cast was last January. So it's been a whole year since we did Sandwich Cast, and it was so much fun. Next month, we're going to do soup cast. <laughs> what counts as soup, everyone? Think about your definition starting now. We haven't lost enough listeners. <laughs> People loved sandwich cast. Sandwich cast was amazing. 
next year we'll do side soft drink and a, and a dessert cast, and we'll we'll get the whole lunch deal, a whole combo. It's gonna oh, be fun. Oh God, I think it's gonna be fun. I like it. It's exciting. There's so much to talk about with soup. <laughs> all right. Well, you can all look forward to that, as I will be as well. But for tonight, I think that is it. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. And especially thank you, my lovely co-hosts, for uh, your time and contributions tonight. I hope that everyone has a lovely day, night, or evening, or morning. Whatever time it is when you're listening to this. <laughs> wow, there were some more efficient ways to say that, but that was adorable. <laughs> I literally can't think of them. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day, everyone. But what is night. it tonight, Ashlyn? <laughs> then good night, Laura. <laughs> good night, Laura. Good time of day, Laura. <laughs> good time of day to you too. <laughs> That's what watch <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. I was just telling Laura, uh, Laura and I just the other day watched the um, the new The Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is not my something nice, but was quite good. And I was telling her about the the repeated attempts to start a a shared, like, dark universe with the universal properties and how, <laughs> how they kept failing. <laughs> so badly. Everybody wants, a, everybody wants a shared universe and it always sucks.